Welcome to Brain Beat, the podcast series of the National Academy of Neuropsychology, otherwise known as NAN. I'm Dr. Peter Arnett, past president of NAN and professor at Penn State University, and I'll be your host today. It's a pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Michelle Braun, who will be talking with us today about Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Braun is a Harvard and Yale-trained board-certified neuropsychologist and a national leader in the field of brain health and cognitive functioning. She's a former instructor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and assistant director of inpatient mental health at the Boston Veterans Administration Hospital. Dr. Braun is passionate about empowering individuals to boost brain health and reduce the risk of Alzheimer's with science-backed strategies and has been featured in national media outlets, including PBS, NPR, Fox Morning News, CBS, and iHeartRadio. She's honored to have been recognized as a 2022 Woman of Influence by Success Magazine, Distinguished Alumni of Carroll University, Practitioner of the Year from the Alzheimer's Association, and member of the 40 Under 40 Class of 2013 by the Milwaukee Business Journal. Dr. Braun is an examiner for the American Board of Clinical Neuropsychology, member of the Board of Directors and Scientific and Advisory Panel of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Association, and previous board member of the American Academy of Clinical Neuropsychology and Wisconsin Psychological Association. Dr. Braun has a popular column on brain health and psychology today and has been an invited speaker for the Alzheimer's Association for the past 17 years. Her debut book, High Octane Brain, Five Science-Based Steps to Sharpen Your Memory and Reduce Your Risk of Alzheimer's is an Amazon bestseller received a starred review from the Library Journal. She lives and works in Wisconsin. Welcome, Dr. Braun, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Now, how did you become interested in Alzheimer's and brain health in the first place? Well, I noticed this growing problem in my clinical practice. It was shortly after I finished my postdoc, and I had a patient come in, and she put a bunch of supplements on my desk mm -hmm. and asked me, is this what I should be doing for my memory? And she was surprised when I said, you know, there is a number of other strategies that we know of that can be really powerful for decreasing the rate of memory change. And unfortunately, these supplements aren't on the list. And that's actually been a surprise for, you know, many patients over the years is that all of the things that are marketed to the general public, or a great percentage of them at least, are based on pseudoscience. And so mm -hmm. I really felt impassioned about getting the word out about the science. It seemed that, you know, in our circles of neuropsychology and medicine, we mm -hmm. have a lot of access to that research. We know what works, but there's this disconnect between mm -hmm. that information and the public. And so one of the other pieces that I think stands in the way and that became really clear in my clinical practice was all of these myths about Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. You know, this predominant myth, for example, that heredity equals brain health, either mm -hmm. in a positive or negative stand. And so it was mm -hmm. really sad to see this perfect storm of pseudoscience and then myths. Mm -hmm. And this incomplete information was really costing people valuable time and money that could be directed toward actually improving brain health. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. It began at that point, you know, this passion of 
let's get the word out and mm-hmm. began with some community presentations and has just blossomed from there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, we'll talk a little bit uh, in just a minute about maybe some of those other myths that people have about Alzheimer's. But what is Alzheimer's disease and how does it impact people's thinking skills? Maybe we could start there. Sure. So it's important to know that Alzheimer's is really characterized by two abnormalities at a level of cellular functioning. And so one of those is called beta amyloid plaques. And the Mm -hmm. second is called neurofibrillary tangles. And it's Mm -hmm. important to know that we're all producing beta amyloid and tau, which is the ingredient of the neurofibrillary tangles, as a natural metabolic byproduct of our brains um, on a daily basis. And that's Mm -hmm. normal. And normally those proteins are produced and they get flushed out. But for some reason, they start to glom together in the state of Alzheimer's And Mm -hmm. they generally do so in fairly predictable geographic regions and spread throughout the brain in a fairly predictable way in the most Mm -hmm. common form of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And so what what happens is when those plaques and tangles start to impact neuronal functioning and start to make it hard for the neurons to communicate, you also see some atrophy or some shrinkage of brain tissue, mm-hmm. um, mainly in what we call the medial temporal lobes initially, which if you can use your ear as a landmark, mm-hmm. go about an inch and a half in towards the center of your head, you're going to see a little curled thumb-shaped structure really about the size of, of our thumb mm-hmm. um, on both sides called the hippocampus. And that hippocampus is ground zero for the aggregation of those different types of neuronal changes that we just talked about, Mm -hmm. which is why memory problems are oftentimes an initial symptom. And Mm -hmm. so it's important to note again, that there are atypical forms of Alzheimer's where you see those cells gather in different parts of the brain, but Mm -hmm. for the majority of people, it starts there in the medial temporal lobes and starts to kind of spread forward and back over time, impacting Mm -hmm. different cognitive functions along the way. So it sounds like memory is really the first thing that's often affected, though, and then other aspects of thinking can be affected later on. Right. And it's important to note that this is memory for new information. A lot of our patients will come to us and say, you know, I was confused because my loved one could remember all of the things in their childhood. And so I didn't think there was a problem. And so we often are helping people to understand, well, that remote memory, those things that happened a long time ago, those Memories have already been stored by the hippocampus. We're not likely to see those challenges as much as we are challenges for remembering conversations and current events, things that recently happened. Yeah, that seems like an important distinction. So there really are different kinds of memory, but all aren't necessarily affected by Alzheimer's, at least in those early stages. Now, back to maybe some of the myths or misconceptions about Alzheimer's. Could you Tell us a little bit about that. So you gave a great illustration of this patient who came into you with all these supplements. So it sounds like that might be one area where there might be some misconceptions or myths, but if you could just maybe tell us a little bit more about that, that would be great. Sure. So the biggest myth I see is this sense of learned helplessness from folks who have a family history of Alzheimer's um, and learned mm-hmm. helplessness, meaning from oftentimes unwittingly from media information that says, you know, brain health is so highly hereditary and there's no mistake about it. There's definitely hereditary elements to our brain health. But what's interesting is that by the time Alzheimer's is diagnosed, if we go back in time and track the physiological changes, 
you can actually see those predating the diagnosis by almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. So if we reconceptualize Alzheimer's as more of a chronic disease, as opposed to something that just happens in later life, that mm-hmm. really empowers us to change our trajectory over time. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what the research supports. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first myth is that it just develops in older adulthood and it's highly hereditary. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, about 99% of cases are not genetically caused. There's a mm-hmm. genetic mm-hmm. risk factor that can be inherited, but that is no more powerful in the trajectory than some of the lifestyle factors we'll talk mm-hmm. about. The other myth that people have is that Alzheimer's occurs equally in people. And it does occur about twice as frequently in women, about twice as frequently in Black Americans as compared to white Americans, and about one and a half times more frequently in Hispanic Americans as compared to white Americans. And so if we understand those different rates, we can think about ourselves and our loved ones in a more targeted way if we Mm -hmm. happen to be members of those groups that have a higher rate of Alzheimer's. Now, that's very interesting in terms of uh, how it's not like there's an equivalent risk across all types of people, but I found the one about the risk in women to be particularly interesting. Is that just because women live longer than men? Yeah, that was initially one of the big questions, and that has not been borne out really in the research um, when that is corrected over time and studied in depth. The leading frontier right now is that there could be hereditary interactions with hormones, particularly estrogen and other hormones that change in their distribution over time. That seems to be the biggest area of inquiry right now, but we're waiting for more information. Gotcha. And then what are the best ways to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's? Is there really anything that we can do? Luckily there is. And because there are actually many ways that we can reduce the risk, I created an acronym that I hope helps to prioritize our focus. And so I'll say quickly as a disclaimer that It's hard to compare apples and oranges. So Mm -hmm. when I'm talking about exercise versus a brain healthy diet, one of the things to know is that exercise has just been studied a lot longer um, than some of the other interventions. So of course it has more support. Mm -hmm. So uh, the acronym is EXCELS, E-X-C-E-L-S. And so Mm -hmm. the E-X stands for exercise, and Mm -hmm. that is cardiovascular exercise where your heart rate is increased. The C in Excel stands for consume brain-healthy foods. The E stands for engage and learn. And this is where you might imagine we're thinking about cognitive exercises, most popularly crosswords and Sudokus. But Mm -hmm. the take-home message is there is no holy grail there, which we can talk about later. The L is for lowering stress to boost well-being. And the S is for sleep. Mm -hmm. And Sleep and lowering stress are definitely factors, but they're more emerging factors. They don't have quite as strong of a support as some of those higher factors. Mm -hmm. And it's important to mention too, that even though we're talking about lifestyle factors, just because somebody has Alzheimer's or memory problems doesn't mean that they've failed in Mm -hmm. developing a healthy lifestyle. Many of us have seen folks come into us and say, look, I lived this really healthy lifestyle. How did I get Alzheimer's? Mm -hmm. And we say there are a lot of factors involved in Alzheimer's. Lifestyle is a big part of the picture, but it's not Mm -hmm. the whole picture. And it's very possible that had somebody not engaged in the healthy lifestyle that they did, 
that we might have had that diagnosis coming up years earlier. Mm -hmm. So people are really comforted when they hear that, yes, even though you have a memory issue, you may have actually pushed this back sometimes Mm -hmm. a decade or more by your healthy engagement. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, in terms of this uh, Excel's model, that's very interesting. It's nice to have, uh, like you say, a convenient acronym to help us remember some of these things that we do know are helpful, as opposed to some of the myths that you mentioned. Now, in terms of the exercise, it sounds like exercise is definitely something that's good for the brain. And you mentioned cardio exercise uh, in particular. Uh, Can you tell us maybe a little bit more about that? Like how much do people have to do in order for that to be to be helpful. You mentioned something that maybe would get your heart rate up. What would the typical person have to do to to make that be as beneficial as possible? So the biggest thing is to look at where you are now with regard to your physical activity and see if you can increase it a little bit. And Mm -hmm. if we look at the dose, so to speak, that's recommended, it's 150 minutes a week of, of moderate intensity cardiovascular exercise meaning that you're kind of huffing and puffing to the degree that you can still talk, but you can't sing. So that's Mm -hmm. something that we call the talk test. It's a nice portable Mm -hmm. way of measuring your intensity. And so that equates to about 22 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. The good news about this, though, is if you are at a level that you're really not moving much at all, even just increasing it a couple minutes a day, always under the guidance of a healthcare professional, of course, can actually be very, very therapeutic. So Mm -hmm. you don't have to feel pressure to be, you know, running a marathon or doing something that's really, really strenuous. Mm -hmm. Just moderate it for yourself. But also let's think about changing the way we refer to exercise, maybe as movement with joy, Um, Mm -hmm. thinking about the whole panoply of things that that opens up. Like, Mm -hmm. do we want to spend time with animals or do we want to be in nature or with Mm -hmm. other people? And so if we broaden that, we see a little less resistance to the idea. Exercise um, otherwise can seem just the term itself to be kind of off-putting. And yeah, that's really helpful to have some kind of rules of thumb there. So thanks for sharing that with us in terms of just, you know, kind of exercising to the point where you're huffing and puffing. So you can basically talk uh, while you're moving, but you can't sing. So that's a nice little rule of thumb for all of us to to go by. So thank you for that. Now, it's one thing to say, do this exercise for 150 minutes a week, which is also kind of a nice rule of thumb that you've given us. But how can we sort of integrate exercise into a busy schedule? Somebody who, you know, has a job, has other things going on. Any tips there for us? Yeah. So the first thing is to personalize it and realize that There are a lot of things that can get your heart rate up and they should be things that bring you joy. So whether that's dancing, walking, whether that is walking around a park or going to a gym, you know, it's very culturally specific as well throughout the world, the options that people have. So personalize is one thing. And then the exercise snack is a really great idea for a lot of busy people. Mm-hmm. And an exercise snack is about a 10-minute cardiovascular exercise session that you can sneak into your day and that has been shown to actually improve memory and attention immediately. Mm-hmm. So people who learned a list of words prior to that exercise snack had fewer words recalled than they did right after that. So this is actually a really nice strategy if you have a presentation or a meeting or 
some sort of engagement where you feel like you need to be at the top of your game cognitively. Mm-hmm. Paradoxically, the best thing to do as opposed to cram the information in your head that you're going to talk about is mm-hmm. to actually do a 10-minute boost of cardio mm-hmm. because your ability to think is a lot more fluid. So that exercise snack mm-hmm. can be a fun way also of referring to exercise. And could the exercise snack just involve, say, taking a 10-minute walk around campus for somebody like me uh, before I, say, teach my class? Absolutely. And as long as you find that to be engaging and a way of bringing your movement to your body and and you like that, that is the key that we're looking for. Great. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. And beyond exercise, uh, does what we eat actually impact the brain? Now, when we, we started this off, you said one of the things that got you interested in Alzheimer's in the first place was talking with this patient who was using all these supplements. But are there actually things that we can eat that can help with brain functioning? Thankfully, yes. And thankfully, now we know a lot more than we did even a few years ago about that. So traditionally, the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet for heart health have been shown in randomized controlled trials to be Mm -hmm. very helpful for brain health. But interestingly, those were only kind of accidentally discovered. They were never intended to be brain health diets. Mm -hmm. And in contrast, there's something called the MIND diet, M-I-N-D, which Mm -hmm. was developed by Dr. Martha Claire Morris and her colleagues at Rush University, which was actually specifically designed to maximize brain health. And so it's helpful to know that that diet in particular, people who follow that have a 54% reduced risk of Alzheimer's if they follow that over four years. And in contrast to the Mediterranean and the DASH diets, which require pretty consistent adherence to the diet, even if you were to engage partially in the MIND diet, you still would have a 35% reduced risk of Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. over four years, even if you just picked and chose some things to eat. And Mm -hmm. so there are 10 brain healthy foods that the MIND diet specifies And they include the usual suspects that we hear about a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So green leafy vegetables and other vegetables, nuts and berries, also beans, whole grains, fish, poultry, olive oil, and red wine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And on the flip side, the mind is the only diet that also specifies five brain deflators, which are actually associated with increased loss of tissue. Mm -hmm. And those five foods are high in saturated fat. That's the common denominator. Mm -hmm. And they include red meats, butter and stick margarine, cheese, which as a Wisconsin resident pains me to say, (laughs) um, (laughs) pastries and sweets, and also fried or fast food. Mm -hmm. And so there are some really interesting interactions that occur with the cellular breakdown of the saturated fats, which try to steal cell material from healthy cells to complete their outer shell that's known Mm -hmm. as a free radical. And the antioxidants of healthy foods can actually serve as a decoy so that they can donate their electron to complete the outer shell of the free radical Mm -hmm. as opposed to saturated fat binding to our healthy tissues. So there's some really interesting things that are happening at that micronutrient level based on what we put in our bodies. Well, that's helpful to know too. It's nice to know there are things that we can actually do to reduce our risk for Alzheimer's. So exercise, changing our diets. As far as the diet change now, you mentioned that this one study where they looked at people over the course of a four-year period, 
I know it can sometimes be hard for people to change their diets. So if I've been eating hamburgers and steaks my entire life, how can I start integrating healthy food into into my schedule and to try to make those changes in my diet, especially if I'm kind of a busy person? That's such a great question because that implementation is really key. And part of what I like to highlight is let's just target the superstar healthy foods. We don't have to overhaul a diet. But if you could, for example, add a serving of dark green leafy vegetables, again, assuming that you have medical approval to do that, because paradoxically, some people should not be adding dark green leafy vegetables to their diet. Mm -hmm. But if that is okay, one serving a day has been shown to, over the course of 10 years, reduce brain aging by 11 years. So you're getting that very positive impact from that superstar food. And then the second superstar food are berries, which again, studied over the course of 10 years, reduced the rate of brain aging by six years. And so even if you could integrate the berries two to three times a week and one serving of dark green leafy vegetables a day, and honestly, the way I do this, because I don't always have the time to make a salad, I sometimes will eat a handful of spinach. And I think of that as dosing myself with the actual nutrient. And so we can kind of fit that into a busy schedule in a that type of a way, thinking of it as a bullet of nutrient that you're taking in. So minimizing the brain deflating foods that we also talked about, the high saturated fats mm-hmm. can be helpful and doing it gradually. Nobody is perfect. Many people, including me and many others who know the science, love the taste of cheese and butter Mm -hmm. and (laughs) saturated fat foods. So it's not like we can't eat those, but it Mm -hmm. is more a matter of, can we reduce that amount slowly and replace and create substitutes, frankly, for Mm -hmm. foods too. Well, that seems like a great way to start. It gives some, you know, kind of guidelines for doing that as opposed to doing a complete overhaul of our diets, like having some berries two or three days a week, and then adding those dark leafy green vegetables in every day if we can. That seems like a reasonable way to start. Exactly. It's much more approachable. And people are really engaged by that idea that we can use little pieces. It does not Mm -hmm. have to be something that causes us to go back to the drawing board with what we're eating on a daily basis in Mm -hmm. in full effect. Gotcha. Dr. Braun, you mentioned that uh, one of the 10 foods that are brain healthy foods involves red wine. Can you maybe say a little bit more about that and just regarding? alcohol use in general, in terms of how that might impact the brain and what we should be thinking about as we, as we age. Sure. I know that's a bit of a controversial issue because there are a number of pieces of research that tell us different things about alcohol use. And in the context of brain health, the red wine support really has revolved around cardiovascular health. Um, Mm -hmm. If we look at some of that research, Sometimes red wine is recommended in small doses because it has a positive impact on some elements of cardiovascular functioning. And what is good for the heart is good for the brain. They're very Mm -hmm. intertwined. However, there are concerns if, for example, someone has a history of heavy alcohol use, it's not as if we Mm -hmm. would say that the impact on brain functioning is that positive that we would want somebody to then maybe purposely drink alcohol if they had a problem controlling it. It's also really important to note that the timing of any alcohol we drink, if we're drinking, for example, a small amount for brain health, Mm -hmm. which let's um, get specific, would be about five ounces of beer, for example, 
or about one and a half ounces of a hard liquor mm-hmm. um, on a daily basis. So it's much smaller than we might think. But if right. we were going to do that, it would be really important that that was not being ingested prior to sleep within mm-hmm. you know three hours or so before bedtime, right. uh, because that really can impact sleep as well. Mm-hmm. So we have to be very careful and measured about that. But that being said, I don't feel like the research on the positive impact of alcohol on brain health is so strong that somebody should be purposely including it in their diet if they don't like it or if they feel like they have a problem with it. So it sounds like at most a person would want to keep that to a relatively small amount. So we're not talking like three glasses of wine a night or something. Maybe a glass of wine would be a reasonable thing to to include um, something along those lines. Okay, great. Thanks. Now, we see a number of patients through our clinic who maybe they're in their early 60s, early 70s, who are experiencing memory problems, and they they almost feel like they're doomed, like things are worse than they used to be, they're not going to get better. But is there anything they can do to make their memory better and improve brain health? Yeah, so I love talking to older adults because it was really that older adult population that the research was initially done on that Mm -hmm. showed that exercise can not only impact and improve brain functioning, but it can actually increase the size of the hippocampus. So if we Mm -hmm. go back to 2011, Kirk Erickson and his colleagues created the seminal study that basically showed that older adults, 60 and older, who engaged in just three days a week of cardiovascular Mm -hmm. exercise had a growth in their hippocampus on the left and the right side of about 2%. And that was over a year versus Mm -hmm. individuals who just did stretching in that time, who had the natural decline of about 1.4% in their hippocampus Mm -hmm. in the density. So good news. Older adults can not only benefit from the standpoint of cognitive functioning, but also Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of having that hippocampus get Mm -hmm. denser. And as we talked about that hippocampus is ground zero for Alzheimer's. And so if Mm -hmm. we can increase the functioning and density there, then that is a really targeted, wonderful way of helping to insulate ourselves against Alzheimer's. Well, that's really great to know that. And it seems like a really good message for our patients to you know, kind of tie it to what's going on in the brain too. And it seems like you know, 2% may not seem like a lot over a year, but over 10 years or something, if you're increasing the size of the hippocampus, that can make a big difference over time. Right. Especially given that over the age of 60, it's, it's naturally atrophying at about one to 2% a year. So mm-hmm. that exercise then can help to nullify to some extent, the natural mm-hmm. age related changes that we all would experience just as a result of growing older. Yeah, it's great to know that. And it sounds like it's never too late to improve brain health from what you're saying is this study, I think you referenced was already um, working with a group of people who are older. So even if a person maybe hasn't had the best eating habits or has not maybe exercised as much as they should, going to their early 60s or 70s, they can still do some of these things and improve brain health. Would that be a fair statement? That is definitely a fair statement. And it's also really empowering to know there's been no upper limit in the research that's been found in terms of people who can benefit from cardiovascular Mm -hmm. exercise and brain healthy activities, including in individuals who have mild cognitive impairment. Some Mm -hmm. really hot research just coming out of the EXERT study showing that even 
lower impact exercise as well as high intensity exercise help to decrease the rate of memory change. Even in the folks we're working with who have Alzheimer's disease, Mm -hmm. cardiovascular exercise is a disease modifying intervention, which means that it impacts the rate at which those abnormal proteins continue to aggregate over time. So that's wonderful to know. There's no upper bound when it comes to age and there is no ability for us to say that you can't benefit even if you have a memory diagnosis already. Well, that's really great to know that, that we have some reason for optimism, even, even later in life. life. So these are, these are some great, great tips for us. Now, are there any final suggestions you have for us uh, before we wrap up? Well, I just wanted to thank you and thank Nan for the opportunity to share this information and for your continued focus on brain health and educating the public, because I really believe that public education is absolutely seminal to mm-hmm. helping people feel empowered and helping us to offset some of the myths that are really prevalent in the media. And you know, our professional associations, NAN and AACN and others have, and APA as well, have really mm-hmm. done increasingly just such a wonderful job of using social media and public education to get the word out. So continuing that is going to be key. Yeah, that sounds great. And a great way to wrap up. We've kind of come full circle, I think, because you mentioned that, you know, some of these misconceptions that your patients brought in into your office were some of the things that initially got you interested in this. So these kinds of public health initiatives can help to kind of clear up some of those misconceptions. So that's a really great way to uh, to end up. Well, thanks, Dr. Braun. We really appreciate your time today. That was a fascinating discussion. You've given us a lot to think about and, and really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This podcast series is sponsored by the NAN Foundation, which can be contacted through our website, nanfoundation.org. The NAN Foundation relies on donations, so please see the website for more information. Also, follow our Brain Beat podcast on Twitter at Brain Beat Pod.